I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street, and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radials, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressmen because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Oscar Watch Podcast, the podcast where we look back at past Best Picture winners for your reconsideration. I am your host, the crusty but benign Stephen Buja. Matt Marchetti sadly is holding out for contract negotiations on the for points on the back end, so he will not be joining us tonight. But I have brought in someone very special. He is a writer, director, producer, all-around fantastic guy. He is the better half of the only podcast about movies. He is the uh, brilliant but sometimes cut corners Shahir Dowd. Shahir... <laughs> I am so glad we finally got you. You're finally well, here. Yes, I know. It's been a long time coming. Thank you for that introduction. I like that I'm the bitter half of the only podcast about movies, my own podcast about movies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so far, as far as I know, the only podcast about movies. But you guys are a very specific topic, so we'll right. let you have this one. My co-host has been on the show, hasn't he? Yes, he has. He has been. Uh, Matt Kroll has been on the show several times in the past, and we have been dying to get you. Hmm? Which movies is he? I know he's done Spotlight because I listened to Yeah, he did Spotlight. He did, and oh, Mad Max as well. The first episode of your show, I believe, as well. It was the inception point, uh, if you want to borrow a phrase from Christopher Nolan, uh, for (laughs) our show. was uh, Because if if anyone's listened to our show, um, one of the things is Matt and I have very, very different personality types and very different tastes in movies. And um, we kind of discovered that just through you know, generally being friends for a few years. So we decided to try and put that difference to podcast form, and it's come out, but the first episode we did was Mad Max Fury Road, which, as it turns out, is the one film we can agree <laughs> upon. <laughs> like, 100% we're just both on the same side of this movie. Um, and Spotlight is actually the, the actual, is probably the other polar opposite of that end, where I love Spotlight. I think it's a fantastic yes. film. Uh, Matt, as you would have learnt on your episode, and as I heard, is not a fan of that uh, of that particular movie. In fact, I've 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 heard him quoted as saying he thinks it's a bad movie in general, uh, which I kind of find fairly um, 
difficult to swallow. I, can, I kind of see his point, but um, it's not a movie, as in it's not a movie for him. But I don't think it's a bad movie. I, I do not want to rehash the uh, the spotlight dialogue because I know yeah. that I I feel like you do that enough on on your own show. But um, yeah, yeah, we so we'll just we'll just sort of move past that. We'll um, slide past that. Yes. Sure. So we are we are going to talk. We are going to go in the past. We are going to talk about the movie of um of the week. However, Shahir, I mentioned that you are a director and you've directed a lot of things, short films. And, ne- and most recently, a bunch of music videos, and you have one that is dropping, I believe, today. It did. It did just drop today. In fact, and it's for an artist uh, named Nigel Stanford, and the, the music video is called Automatica, and it features uh, real robots playing music. Uh, and this is a follow-up from a video that uh, that you were in. I remember. Even. Yeah, uh, <laughs> called Cymatics, which came out a few years ago, which did uh, pretty well. I, I think it's you know, I, I hate saying throwing this word around, but it, it does get tossed around. As you know, it went viral, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so Cymatics was a, a, a music video where we used uh, real life science experiments to make music. Uh, this time around, we uh, got some support from a company named Kuka, who make um, industrial robots that are used to you know put to get build cars and weld and put together industrial you know used in industrial settings for mass production. We, uh, well, Nigel decided that, hey, it would be interesting to see if we could put those to, to use uh, to play music. And uh, for a period of six months, we kind of uh, figured out how to do that. Neither of us are roboticists, as you would imagine. Right. And um, um, Nigel kind of takes the lead on the technology side. I take the lead more on the story and the scripting side and, and, and directing it, obviously. And uh, yeah, the video dropped today on TechCrunch. It'll go live uh, at, at the time that anyone will be listening to this. It'll be live on YouTube, um, and hopefully going viral. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe check in with me next week, and we'll find out. Okay, we will. It's a it's a fantastic video. The song is Automatica, and the artist is Nigel Stanford. He's he's also just he just ha- he just has great music in general. Yeah, but the the videos really help. They're great and they're uh, they're done by this man and it's it's beautiful a lot of uh, his music uh is is uh is superb for concentration like it's really mm. great like i listen to a lot of his stuff while i'm writing um it's really really great for like putting you in the zone so yeah check out nigel stanford's music you can check out him in the music video nigelstanford.com yeah awesome so um shahir we have you here tonight not to discuss the separation sadly we I know. Uh, I've been episode, by the way. I thank you. I, thank you. I appreciate it's, you guys answering my question as well. We appreciate you asking the question very much. But we have with you, we have you here tonight to talk about the 1976 film Network. Now, it's one, you, wanted, you wanted to approach this slightly differently. Network is a great movie, but it is also a greatly written movie. And you wanted to focus on the, on the scripting of this film by uh, the script by uh, Patty Chayefsky. And what, uh, why, why this movie? Why this one? Well, I, to be fair, I actually gave you uh, a few options and you guys came up with this one. If you, if you recall, um, this the is true. I, uh, the options I gave you were, I, well, first off, I felt like I wanted to do a screenplay as opposed to uh, a, a feature film winner, because I think I wanted to, talk about, and it's something we don't talk about a lot in, in, um, on my podcast about the relationship between script and what ends up on screen, because, um, I think I tend to have a fairly strong director focus, um, mm-hmm. on my podcast, uh, me tending to be a director myself. 
Um, but um, this is just one of those great, great screenplays that that um, I think you know, like even uh, Aaron Sorkin when he won his uh, best uh, best screenplay for uh, the Social Network got up and said something along the lines of, I'm sharing the stage with another man who wrote a film with the name Network in the title. Um, uh, and he was, of course, referring to Paddy Chayefsky's um, Network. And and I think, you know, in amongst screenwriters, this is one of those those holy grails of screenplays. Uh, in, in, in so much as you're not even sure how this thing ended up on screen, given how <laughs> dense and complicated the screenplay is and how... And how um, untraditional the screenplay is as well. How how sort of actively this screenplay goes against the kind of Robert McKee school of thinking when it comes to three act structure and when it comes to like um, uh, resolving stories. This is a you know like and and the other reason is this film is kind of the when you look up satire in the dictionary you'll probably come up against the you know uh, you'll probably come to the film Network at some point. Um, so it's an interesting example of uh, a screenplay or a piece of art that is trying to embellish the tenets of a particular medium while at the same time saying something profound about it, yeah. um, which is the reason I was kind of very interested in, in talking about it, I guess. Yeah. Maybe I just wanted to talk about it as well. You know, I've... whenever I can talk about network or an older <laughs> film, I'm, 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 I'm there. Well, there's no there's no problem in that. That's a great reason to talk about something because it is worth talking about. And not and not only does it take a look at the uh, the medium it is talking about, I think it it cuts to something much deeper and uh, longer lasting. That's uh, this very human truth of the <laughs> truth of the world, which I look forward to uh, perhaps getting getting into right after we take this break, because Network did still win a whole bunch of Oscars at the 1976 Academy Awards. So we're going to discuss those ever so briefly before we dive right into the screenplay of Network. So, in the name of all us perverts. <laughs> I uh, don't, as a rule, in fact, I don't ever before remember making public acknowledgement of private and very personal feelings, but I think it's time that I acknowledge two people whom I can never really thank properly or enough. I would like to thank my wife, Sue, and my son, Dan, for their indestructible support and enthusiasm, for their ideas, their discussions, their stimulation, and for their very presence, my gratitude and my love. Thank you. Network did not win Best Picture that year. That honor went to Rocky. Our Actually, our very inaugural episode back in uh, ooh, May of 2016 with old co-host Alex. Uh, it was a little rough, but do go and check it out after you get a chance. Uh, in a di- it did win Best Original Screenplay for Pat Achayevsky. That was his third such award. He also yeah. wrote uh, 1955's Best Picture winner, Marty, and a film I had literally never heard of until I started researching this, The Hospital. Hospital. Yeah, yeah with, uh, George C. Scott. I, I have not seen that film either. I um, didn't even know it existed. I was like, but wow, apparently it got some major major heat that year. I was like, damn, Okay. And yeah. and Network did win a lot of awards that year as well. Also won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Best Screenplay. 
So it kind of like almost fills up everything other than Rocky. Pretty you know much, I mean? yeah. Rocky, uh, Rocky went. I think left with maybe I think three awards and uh, network, and I think all the presidents all the men presidents walked men walked away with four each. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Shahir mentioned that one act, actor, actress, and supporting actress. That actress was the one and only Faye Dunaway. The actor was the late Peter Finch, who died after filming uh, Network and just just receiving the nomination. It was the first posthumous Academy Award ever gr- uh, granted, and one of only two. The second being Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight in two thousand eight, and uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Beatrice Strait. Uh, which I believe at this current time is the shortest appearance by a supporting actor in any role at roughly five minutes. She has one really? scene, she has one scene and she kills it. You know, it's funny because Jason Robards won for all the president's men and he's actually not in all the president's men a lot what? either. It must've been a year where like the voters like only had a certain amount of time. And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. only, the, the best supporting category only had like 10 minutes to watch a movie. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny, um, but it, it you know, it was, but it was nominated for best picture, best director. Sydney is it? Sydney Lum- Lumet. Lumet. Okay, I always thought it was Sydney Lumet, but Lumet. Right. Well, that's how I pronounce it. I could be wrong there. Yeah. I always, for the longest period of time, because I was like, uh, you know, I did high school French. I uh, thought it was Lumet. Ooh, but, <laughs> but uh, you're so fancy. Out. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> the New York style Sydney Lumet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, uh, best actor William Holden. So they were they were going up against each other. The the great William Holden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, best supporting actor Ned Beatty for another very short role. He had one epic speech to. Uh, did he did he win that? Sorry. No, no, he, no, he didn't. He lost. He lost to Jason Robards as best supporting actor. Ah, okay. Yeah. And uh, cinematography as well as editing. I think I might wow. have given it editing because this is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really tightly done movie, but perhaps m- perhaps much of that can be attributed to the screenplay itself. Oh, before we begin, we do have one question from Twitter at Joey G. That's me. Ask: Would Finch still win Best Actor had he not died earlier that year? Follow up sub question: Also, is this category fraud? Finch goes supporting, so Holden wins lead. Very good question, I think. And you know what? I think if Peter Finch did not die, he died of a heart attack shortly between the announcement of the Oscars and the Oscars himself, I I really want to believe that De Niro would have taken this uh, for Taxi Driver. He got Finch got a lot of love. However, it's also not necessarily because you die, you don't necessarily win. Um, Spencer Tracy died after, guess who's coming to dinner? And that year, the best actor went to Rod Steiger for In the Heat of the Night. So it's not guaranteed. But I got to believe De Niro would have won earlier, and then he would have picked up another one for Raging Bull. Or, and this would be crazy, Academy Award winner Sylvester Stallone. Now that'd be something. I don't think William Holden's performance is strong enough to win Best Actor. However, it would have been great to see Holden win Best Actor. Finch, Best Supporting Actor. Dunaway, Best Actress, and Beatrice Strait, Best Supporting Actress, because no movie has ever won all four acting awards. In fact, uh, Network is one of the few that that took three out of four. So, no, I don't think it's category fraud so much, although they could have um, run the campaign differently. At some point, when you just have so many actors in a movie, you just end up having to shut, put them into the same category. It happens from time to time. Um, 
But I'm actually honestly I'm surprised that the their votes didn't cancel uh, one another out. But I do believe that has a lot to do with the fact that Peter Finch a gave a great performance and b died uh, early when he was uh, mounting a comeback tour. So thank you, J- uh, Joey G. We appreciate your question and let's continue. You asked me this question over email. Why why should we look at a screenplay? Uh, yeah. I think if I'm not paraphrasing your question a little bit. Um, and I obnoxiously quoted uh, <laughs> Akira Kurosawa, and it's a quote, and, and I know that's kind of like a film school trick, um, but I, but I, it is a, it is a quote I kind of remember often as I'm writing and as I'm working as a director. Um, I, I quoted you the actual script, uh, uh, the actual quote, uh-huh. uh, but I've always remembered it uh, something to the effect of, uh, with a great script, a mediocre director can turn in a great film, and uh-huh. with a but but even with a bad script, even a great director can't possibly make a good film. And it's uh, I and I, I there are little nuances to that because I think it underwhelms the the value of the director in certain cases. But I think what Kurosawa is trying to say is that if the foundations aren't good, no matter how much you build on top of it or how well you put on, you know how well you shine this up, it's going to fall apart. And mm-hmm. and I think that is true for. That that is still a true tenet of filmmaking. If you if the fundamental idea and screenplay aren't good, uh, then you have a major uphill battle. Yes. Uh, at the at the at the heart of all of this, we are still engaged in the art of storytelling, and you need to have a good story with characters you care about, and you know drive and forward momentum, and and all these things that you know we have in novels and theater and whatnot. So. It makes absolute sense. You were just kind of, you were kind of obnoxious about it. You're just like, this is why. You just dropped it and yeah. then walked away. I'm like, okay. Yeah. I, I honestly, I thought you would have gone with Hitchcock's. Uh, there are three things you need: the script, the script, and the script. Right. And, and that's yeah. it. There's also uh, isn't Kubrick who who wrote, "If it can be written, it can be filmed." I didn't think that quite applied in this case, but I was yeah. kind of thinking about that as well. The the funny thing is, as a as a writer myself and as a a, a film watcher and, and someone who likes to be um, analytical about the, the the process of making films, um, I think there is a, in recent culture, and it might you know you could point it, probably point it back to the movie adaptation. You could probably point it back to earlier than that. But the, but Robert McKee is clearly the the guru of script writing in Hollywood uh, in Hollywood. Uh, Robert McKee and William Goldman, I believe. Um, and they sort of have these sort of fairly stringent rules about what makes a good script. And I, I tend to reject uh, that notion as well because I think the, the, capa- the potential for cinema as an art form uh, to kind of go in multitudes of directions is, is still uh, completely un- – is, is not com- entirely explored and there are a lot of movies that I love um, that that have no script, for example, or have like the loosest outline of a script, or or get rewritten in in uh, entirely in the editing stage. You know, um, Woody Allen's uh, Manhattan is a film that got completely rewritten, rewritten uh, as it was edited. Uh, a film like In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai is a film that that basically begins as an improvisational improvisational act. Uh, I think I flubbed that. Um, and then eventually lands on being a movie. So uh, while I am passionate about screenwriting, particularly in the, the case of something like Paddy Chayefsky uh, or someone like Paddy Chayefsky and Network, I'm kind of 
I'm not one of those people that tend to believe that the the script is the holy grail and that's what we should be absolutely landing on. You know, like I think there's a lot of things that cinema can do um, that that you know isn't necessarily relying on the script. And I think relying on the script kind of pushes cinema to being uh, a visualization of theater and and novelization, which I think it can do other things than just that. Hmm. Well said. Well said. Well, as uh, first of all, I believe that's um, Academy Award winning William Goldman, who won this year for best screenplay based on material for another medium for All the President's Men. So just yeah. like <laughs> just put pay, it out there, pay your respects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, I believe um, Chayefsky, uh he was on set every single day for this yeah. movie, ensuring that they nobody fucked up his lines. They yeah. were to be said exactly as he wrote them, and that was that. And he would he would clash with actors and with the director constantly over, over that. It became uh, it became somewhat annoying. Well, as far as I understand it, Chayefsky is also like a you know like the 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 modern analog that we can think of with Chayefsky is Aaron Sorkin. Oh, ab- you know, the, absolutely. The, the the screen and and what you're talking about there is. Uh, uh, the screenwriter as the name above the title that that sells the movie. You know, there's very few screenwriters, maybe Charlie Kaufman back, you know, like in the early 2000s that could sell a movie just based upon the screenwriter's mm-hmm. name. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is that person now, and Patty Chayefsky was that person back uh, in 1976. Um, and I believe Lumet, uh, you know, acknowledged, Lumet was a director of note at that point, uh, and he, you know, he could have final cut on a film, but opted not to have Final Cut on Network because this is really Chayefsky's film. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to make sure that Chayefsky, who had spent all this work, you know, building up this structure that was unique, that was um, fairly radical uh, in terms of what a film was trying to do, you know, particularly with this over uh, with, with this narration that feels sort of like a TV narration, which is fairly unusual. Um, he didn't want the film to get swept up beyond, you know, like if the script is good, why mess with it? Why mess with it? And I think, I think, you know, um, there's a feeling, especially if you're a director, especially young directors like myself, um, you know, you've got to show off in some way. You've right. got to like show, hey, I directed this film, and this is not one of those movies. This is, you know, like Nitwick is beautifully directed, but in the way that kind of, you know, and again, I know we're not yeah. going to litigate on Spotlight again. But in the way that Spotlight is directed, which is that it is it steps out of the way of the screenplay. You know, the screenplay is king in that film. Yes. Screenplay is king in this film. Agreed. Agreed. So I guess the question comes down to um, what are the strengths of the script to network? Why has this thing endured? And why are we talking about it right now? So I, whenever I... Whenever I watch Network, I am blown away by the interrelationship between philosophy and narrative. And and what I mean there is that it's often in in a lot of screenplays, a lot of writing, a lot of filmmaking, it's impossible to divorce the philosophies of the writer from the film. So what I mean is like in Fight Club, when um um uh, when Brad Pitt turns to Cameron and says, we are the all dancing, all, you know, uh, shit of the world. Um, it's hard not to say that that is not the philosophical worldview of Chuck Palahniuk. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, there's a clear line between uh, what Palahniuk thinks 
and what the characters are saying. In Network, I think that line is a little more blurry because I think Chayefsky does something really interesting, which is that he frames Howard Beale's rants, which are amazing. You know, everyone loves, you know, the, the famous, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Everyone loves this notion that Howard Beale gets up and speaks truth to power um, and yells very loudly. He's the angry man who's saying, you know, yeah. the world is not, is not what we think it is and it's time for us to regain power. But I think Chayefsky does a really smart thing, which is that he frames that within a con within the context of a mental illness. You know, it, the mental illness is not ever like explained, but we know that Howard Beale is not a well man. Right. And even though the film gives a forum for what Howard Beale has to say, not only does the film kind of place it in the context of he is not a well man, it also kind of does this interesting thing, which is that it gives him foils to butt up against which like really challenge his philosophical worldview and it's a really tricky interesting thing that i don't see in a lot of screenplays and and what i love about this is this is this is a screenplay that's kind of interrogatory it's it's like it's not just taking what howard beale says and spilling it as gospel which is what i think if i was writing a screenplay about television i might do it's a screenplay that has like a very unique idea about television. You know, it describes the the con the conceit of television as inducing madness, which I think is true. But it butts very it up much against, so. It butts it up against, for, for example, Jensen, uh, who's played by Ned Beatty. His worldview that the that the currency of the world is the almighty dollar, and we and you need to acknowledge that in order to like press forward, and and that there is a fabric to the universe that that operates, and I think. It's very rare to see a script that, you know, this is about television. It could be tabloid. You know, there are other films about television that come out much later, uh, broadcast news, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but this one is actually, there's a clear conceit of philosophy that is being challenged by the story itself. It's not just giving you one presentation of an idea. I, I like Fight Club a lot, but I don't think the, the nihilism of Fight Club gets challenged very, very much in that movie. You know, no, it's seen as it's seen as like the proper way to go. Exactly. Even despite despite all the the, the death and destruction it, it may cause, it's the it's the it's the freeing aspect of masculinity. We can, can absolutely go down that road at a later date. And I, you know, I so I don't think. I mean, what what do you think the the central conceit of network is if it has anything to say about television, the world? Um, life as we know it. No, oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, well, actually, first, I'm going to preface. I'm going to say I read the book "Mad as Hell" by um, David Itzkoff, which is basically a whole like history of how Network got made and the you know a in-depth look at Patty Chayefsky. And he was, um, I would have to disagree with you slightly in saying that this is very. This is all Patty's voice. Mm -hmm. Every rant is. Patty assuming the position of rage. He, right. he is, uh, it's, a, it's a film that is, if it is about nothing else, it is about this anger that cannot be, that you feel, but you can never quite put your finger on it. And, right. and at last, finally, here's this one character who is able to, as you say, speak truth to power. 
And that's what I think I think it's at. It's about a, a man who feels that there's something wrong, knows he can't do anything about it, and you just ha- sometimes you just have to you have to get as mad as hell and say that you can't take it anymore. And because that, it, that in and of itself is the, is the end goal. I think, I think of it and watching it get corrupted through this, through the system is how the, uh, is how the said system and how the world, and you know, there's a lot of capitalist, you know, anti-capitalist talk basically and how that asserts itself onto even, the, even your emotions, even the, the truth of the, truth of things gets co-opted and branded and stuck in at 630 uh, on prime time because it pulls in 14 million viewers a night and it's um sad in a way it's it, so, you know, so sad you know the thing i was struck by uh watching this film um be this time around i've seen it a couple of times now uh but this is you know again thank you for inviting me on so that i could actually like spend some time detailing what my thoughts of this film were the funny thing about reading the screenplay is it's a very difficult screenplay to read because he introduces not only Howard Beale, Jensen, the main, you know, Max, uh, I forget his Schumacher. name, Diana, Max Schumacher and, and Diane, who are the kind of the, the four main players, you know, they're actually on the poster. But, but in the screenplay, he actually introduces everybody, including <laughs> the, associate, the, the, the production assistants, the associate director, the director of the show, um, the head of, the head of um, content at the network. So he walks into a room and, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, when Beale walks into a room, Chayefsky describes each of those people really, really quickly. So it's a really hard screenplay to actually start reading because you're like, oh, I don't know where I am. Mm-hmm. And you don't know who to latch onto at what point. But the thing that was interesting reading at this time was how much, how, how brilliant this is at conveying the way in which an idea travels through mm. a commercial entity. And and what what the, the brilliance of the first act of the script of the screenplay and the story is that what you see are basically the three pieces that would allow an idea like putting Howard Beale on television to to do mad rantings to take hold you know like Howard Beale is kind of at the precipice of madness he is uh, having visions of God if he was uh, a poor homeless man you would expect to see someone like this on the subway shouting um, you know, with a sign around his neck or something like that. Right. But he is also a network news anchor. He's on television, and, and that's why they picked him. That's why they picked him. But it's also what it out like. What the, the start of the screenplay outlines really beautifully is that this happens in the context of a network that is losing money, that sees its news division as a financial failure, and is and is trying to um, sell themselves to a to a third party conglomerate. So. So okay, so there's that thread, you know, like they 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 Max uh, Schumacher basically hates that the news uh, drags their their uh, profit share down every year, and he doesn't see the value of the news as a sort of public institution, you know, the fourth estate kind of thing. Uh, I, th- I know. Uh, I think you're thinking of um, Robert Duvall there. Robert Duvall's character. Yeah, sorry, Hackett. Sorry. Hackett. Hack- Hackett. I apologize. Um, he doesn't see the news as kind of like uh, serving a public good. Or he doesn't see that that public good shouldn't be financially successful. But on the other side of that, you've got this young upstart female producer, Diana, who or Diane, uh, played by Faye Dunaway, who's looking looking for the lightning rod that can elevate her into into the you know into something bigger. 
And mm-hmm. and the the convergence of those three things is what gets Howard Beale on television. And that's a that it doesn't happen by like one person saying, God, I'm I'm really in financial trouble here. What are we gonna do? And then, oh, Howard Beale's like, I've got this idea. It doesn't happen by that. You just see these three things happening concurrently, and suddenly they converge into one moment, which right. is pretty much how it would happen. Right. It's an it's an opportunity. Yeah. It, literally, somebody's you know, the 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 inciting incident happens. That's how uh, Howard's claiming he's going to shoot himself, and then they people they attack it. They yeah. attack it, and they latch on and they leech the literally leech the life out of out of Howard until he's until there's nothing left of him and he has no more no no further value to him. Well, but interestingly from a corporate point of view, they want to just get rid of him. It's Max who's just been fired and you know like this news thing is has has kind of like left you know like he's he's on the outskirts of his career now. He's the one who kind of just goes leave him on. You know like I if he's this is the way he's going to go out, this is the way he's going to go out. So it's not even, you know, I, I'm a guy, you know, I have a media studies background, uh, film, film criticism background. Um, so we're the kind of people that read Noam Chomsky, John, uh, John Pilger, those sorts of people. And when you read those kinds of people, you get, you always get the, you walk away from it with a sense of like, there are some white men in a room somewhere who are dictating the terms of my life. You know, there are people who are, who are making decisions. But that's not actually how the world works, and I think because because at, at least one of them is a woman in this case. In this case, yeah, this, <laughs> it does happen in the screenplay, oddly enough. But the beginning inception of what puts Howard on TV is not like an organized orchestration of of someone trying to determine the fate of all people or or trying to like you know swing the fate of the world. It's basically everyone just kind of running around with their heads cut off, and there's this one idea that takes. That you know that that sparks a flame that continues on, and it's not you know it, it's kind of amazing to see that written down like that and and play out like that. Yeah. Uh, that was the thing that really struck me, the, you know, watching it this time. Yeah, it happens so naturally, and I I think that's this is where the forty years since the movie has come out really really starts to uh, affect it. That we're so used to seeing flashes in the pan. Like because we're you know since we're constantly connected with me with memes and stuff like this is the cash me outside girl essentially yeah. <laughs> like that's it's like she was yeah. like this 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 one woman said this outrageous thing and yeah. then beca- like everyone's like oh my god the cash me outside girl and she's making making a bunch of money and she becomes this whole big thing and then she's just gone it's, yeah. it's like it's it's all of that but in the context of the respectable news of the of of things they couldn't even conceive of back uh back in the 70s uh, it becomes it becomes... she's 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 absorbed and chewed up by the system pretty quickly yes uh, and i think and i think today uh we would i mean you know uh howard beale the same thing happens to howard beale he's pretty much picked up and chewed up by the system because what this film demonstrates as well is that no message that is unacceptable to the powers that be will ever make it across the air you know, like no matter how much, uh, you know, you think something is a counterculture um, point of view or how much you think something is uh, anti-establishment, uh, you have to remember that everything is establishment. And, and the very fact that you're reading it uh, means that it comes from an establishment point of view, uh, whether you like that or not. Yeah. I loved the, um, okay, truth, I had not seen this film until just recently. 
Okay. Uh, it's a bad, bad film student. So, uh, so, um, so when uh, I think it's uh, Laurie Holden's character, the uh, the the uh, the anarchist, I, f- I forget her. I forget her. Right. Name. Oh my god. Yeah. He says, "Don't touch my distribution." Oh yeah, I was like, I was like, like th- I think that to me more than anything is what the movie is really about. It's just how great ideas get co-opted and corrupted. And suddenly, even the revolutionaries, the people who are fighting against the system, get swallowed up by it because the system cannot abide any uh, any assaults on it. And the system is very good at protecting itself from outside threats that seek certainly threats that seek to destabilize it in any way. And it it plays it plays on the uh, the natural inclination for people to make money and help themselves first out of out of everything. And it's so fucking depressing and i was i was i was wondering like what is what is going on with this side story here like it's interesting dunaway's great everyone's killing it but what and then i'm like oh that's what oh chayefsky you beautiful bastard you oh man well it comes and 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 it all kind of circles around i mean jensen's monologue is is you know obviously scenery chewing to it to its finest um Mm. But but every the thing is, and you know, look, when I watch this now, I would I would concede uh, two things that I think are actually problematic with the film. One is that it is constant monologuing. Oh yes. Um, and and, and yes. if you're not into that, then I could see that this film would kind of fall over because yes. there is, um, you know, it's just every character, even uh, Max's wife, who's only in it for for a little piece. Uh, has this amazing monologue that would literally be the best monologue in any film about the force. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the, yeah. The, uh, just to kind of uh, the great uh, New Yorker film critic Pauline Kael hated this movie because really? it was just diatribe after yeah. diatribe. She called it. Yeah. Oh, I believe she called it a bunch of hot air, as I recall. Yeah. It's just I, I, I would, I would concede that. And I think uh, there's one monologue at the end of the film. With, between Max and Diane, where when he's leaving her, where he basically starts talking about her not as Diane but as television, mm-hmm. and and I think that's when I was you know that's the point at which where the monologuing goes beyond um, people giving good speeches to like that's that's actually a good example of 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 Chayefsky's voice coming through a character directly as opposed to the character expressing. Um, an idea that maybe Chayefsky believes in or doesn't believe in, or you know, that right. that's the point at which it doesn't work. Right. But I think this 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 notion that Jensen says, um, where he says there there are no Arabs, there are no third worlds, there is no West, there is one ho- there's only one holistic system of systems, once one vast, immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars, petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars. Reichmarks, rubles, rins, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency that determines the totality of life on this planet. And I get shivers. Now I've delivered that badly. I'm not an actor. I'm no, I got I got shivers down my spine too, man. It's just, good words. Just listening to that, um, and the way in which you know Ned Beatty is filmed in that scene is just, it's just Brilliant. you're just watching go. Mwah. You know, this is the, <laughs> this is this is what cinema is about, and this is what great writing is. Um, because this is a character we haven't met before coming in and basically spieling the the spieling the backdrop for which all the other characters exist in. This is the 
this is the man behind the green curtain, the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, this is the guy behind the guy. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna say he's the emperor, but um, yeah, sure. Or shall I say he's Thanos? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> if we well, given that we haven't heard Thanos speak ever uh, in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, oh, he spoke. He spoke. He spoke in Guardians, the first Guardians. Oh, was it? Was it? Did he? Did he speak about the multivariate uh, system of the universe? No, but now I wish he did. Oh man, that'd be <laughs> so great. Sorry, I just had to drop Marvel at least no, once. No, Matt, this, love you. This is the thing. If 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 uh, if the Marvel universe had an inkling of a philosophical notion that that it stood up again, you know that it, that that the films actually like worked with, I would be very very interested in it. I, I find that. There are just empty thrills to be had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know you, you've started me down a path. Um, but um, You will not appear on a podcast if you don't disparage the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the well, thing I, is, I like, I, I like, you know, I like turning those on just as good sort of uh, fodder for my, for my cinema, for example. You know, like I have a projector mm-hmm. at home, so it's good fodder to just have. But there's not a lot in them other than that. At any rate, yeah. every character is swirling around this idea that they are basically trying to come up above water in a way that nobody else has. But when Jensen comes to the screen, he's basically the ocean that everyone lives in and no one will ever mm-hmm. get past. You know what I mean? Very nice. And, uh, <laughs> sure. And, and, and the thing that's really interesting about that is that not only is he speaking truth... When I, when I first watched this the first time, which I, I can't remember when was the first time I saw this movie... I thought, oh my God, this this person Jensen is so brilliant that he's basically just found a way to get Howard Beale's attention because Howard mm-hmm. Beale is running around with his head cut off, basically shouting, you know, truth to power, you know, like he's that crazy guy. And Jensen comes in and, go, and just knows immediately that okay, I'm dealing with someone who is not quite connected to reality, so I'm going to give a sermon and put myself in the position of God for this person. Right. And it was kind of a brilliant. That's the way I kind of read it as a brilliant conceit of like the ability Jensen has to manipulate. Mm-hmm. But but then on the other side of it, I think Jensen is also uh, true is the true omnipresent figure in this film, and and he is the the reality that Chayefsky is kind of coming up against. Yeah. Well, Jensen, you know, you know, um, Beale, he's the one speaking truth to power, but he's never had to actually talk truth to the actual power. And that's yeah. where Jensen comes in, and he swats him down like uh, like an Old Testament uh, prophet or something. He's like, "No, you are completely wrong." Yeah, and- exactly. And it, it's so it's amazing to have that character come up on screen and speak it so well as well. You know, like just to actually like to sum it up in terms that we know is getting completely through to Howard Beale. Like he's not, you know, Howard Beale isn't misinterpreting this in any way. He isn't like. This, and this is also probably the point that would Howard Beale would kind of like tip over the edge in terms of his sanity because he's actually confronting the God as he knows it. Yes. He's, 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 Jensen is the literal manifestation of television, at yeah. that, of television and the, the capital world at that point. And, you know, and, and, and he does change. He then goes, you know, he goes, starts talking, he backs off on the whole CCA acquisition and stuff yeah. like that. But. That uh, that doesn't fly well with uh, the producers, and so he's. Well, it doesn't fly well with the audience as yeah. well. You know, like that—that's the—that's the weird thing. And I think, you know, that's that's the point at w- because then he starts talking about the uselessness of individualism. You know, like mm-hmm. the the fact that 
that the modern age has basically rendered individual identity as perfunctory. And, um, and that's ironic for a guy standing up on television being paid to like sermonize every week. Um, but, 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 and, you know, and then the thing, the, the sort of ripple down of that power, it's kind of like the start of the film is, is how Howard Beale rippled into the situation. And the back half of the film is how he kind of gets rippled out of it is because he starts talking about something that just doesn't catch hold. It doesn't, right. it doesn't, you know, it doesn't catch hold with anyone. And it also happens to go against the, the underlying philosophy of what that corporation, and this is where it gets really interesting, I think as well, because, okay. because I think in the Chomsky, John Pilger sort of view of the world, there is a central puppet master, the godfather, if you will, that's pulling all the strings. In the Chayefsky version of this, you know, we do have the scene with the men in the room deciding to kill Howard Beale, but they are not the puppet masters, they're middle management. And it's, you know, like, and they're basically, they have assumed that, that they have assumed the role of power brokers because they fear for their own sustainability in this world. So Jensen himself has said, I have a, what's the word? He has an untenable, unflexible um, view that, that Howard Beale must stay on television. Yes. Uh, I think, I think Jensen actually connects with, uh, with Beale and he's, and I think Jensen comes to the realization, and it happens entirely off screen, that there's some value to Beale. Maybe, maybe even just as a play thing, you know, he just likes the idea that there's this like guy out there, you know, shouting, and he likes and he enjoys it. Maybe he thinks it's fun that that someone's, you know, like speechifying every week, and and the result will be is people will stop listening to him, um, and and stop caring about what he has to say. But but Jensen isn't the person that decides that that Howard Beale needs to be killed on air. It's middle management that makes that decision. And they're doing it because they fear the longevity of their own position. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like they're doing it for ratings. And okay. they become, they, you know, like in the in the natural order of the universe, they become the hyenas, you know, so to speak. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really strange. Yeah. Uh, they, beca um, they, become the, they become the Pharisees that is like, you know, this, this Jesus guy, we gotta, he's got to go. Right yeah, now. yeah. Like, not going to. <laughs> yeah, which uh, which is uh, I think that that struck me as as sort of uh, profound and really interesting and, and a really sort of I guess unique and complex idea to trans to to basically go to write in a screenplay, you know, not to have Jensen in the room deciding, you know, because Jensen is the big bad, you know, it's, yeah, like imagine, is. yeah, you know, Thanos not being in the room to decide the destruction of Earth, he's just basically like, yeah, I don't care. But everyone else, you know, like deciding that that needs to happen. I mean, I think that would be actually kind of brilliant. Would but, be, yeah, wouldn't it? I would, like a, a little. But I'm, a, I'm a, pretty a little sure. Less. I'm pretty sure Thanos is going to come down and people are going to start punching him at some point. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be epic and awesome. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, scaling, uh, scaling away from uh, Jensen and the uh, and you know his relationship with Beale. Uh, I want to talk about some of the characters, and mostly, are they characters or are they just mouthpieces for Patty Chevsky's words? And but more importantly, I was wondering, how do you feel about Diana and Max's relationship in this movie? I was very the so it, it's something that I was very taken with the first time I watched it. I was I was kind of struck by how 
honest that felt, you know, how honest it was about uh, Max being a middle-aged man going through his midlife crisis and having a relationship with this younger woman. Um, and then, and Diane also being like, I once had a schoolgirl crush on you. You are the object of my, of my, you know, of, you, I, I've idolized you for so long. Mm -hmm. And both of them coming to the reality that coming to the, coming to understand that, that, that that's just a fantasy, you know, like, and I, I was always struck by, um, how, how each of those characters, you know, understands that reality really well by the end of the film. Uh, I will say the last scene between Max and Diane, where uh, I think it has the famous line where Max says something along the lines of, "Why is it that w when a woman, th why is it a woman thinks the worst thing that she can say to a man is to impugn his coxmanship?" <laughs> and and she says something along the lines of, "I wasn't impugning your coxman," and then she stops because <laughs> she really, she clearly was. And I think, I think you know, and then Max, by the way. Max breaking up with Diane is savage. It is you know, oh, like he doesn't just it. break up with her. He destroys her as uh, an entity. <laughs> you know, like yeah. he as a non-television entity. The la the last the last vestiges of her as Diana is, I think, lost at that moment. Yeah, it's you know, like it, you know, the the humbling thing. I think if you're going through a breakup, is just to walk away, and he doesn't just walk away. He basically kills. The root of of Diane on his yeah. way out, um, but he does kind of get into this monologue where again he starts talking about her as television. Mm -hmm. You know, he says you've uh, you've nullified, and again I'm not reading from the screenplay here, but it's like you've you've trivialized death and uh, sports into the same, so that they've nullified and become the same thing, um, and you treat uh, the world in frames and seconds, and and it's just madness and. I I see what he's saying, and and I think it is true to his experience. But I think at that point uh, we kind of start the veneer of not being a mouthpiece kind of falls away, uh, and Chayefsky is talking directly to television at this point. Yeah, um, which is problematic, and it's not. Uh, you know, if you're Pauline Kael, uh, this might be the the breaking point for you, <laughs> where it's like, you know what. I put up with an, an hour and a half of this already. This is really the last straw. Um, but I was struck by, you know, how, how, like, I felt Max and Diane could have their own movie. Like, Max and Diane oh, yeah. could have been a movie unto itself, you know, and, and would have been a really compelling and interesting one. And it's the B plot of this bigger story. Right. Um, so, so I was kind of struck by, the the way in which uh, Chayefsky doesn't treat that relationship as perfunctory, because if you think about it as well, nothing that happens in the confines of that relationship, which we spend a lot of time on, actually impacts the Beale story, other than the psychological impact it has on Diane. But it's not like it changes her. Like I think the person at the beginning of the relationship with Max would have still decided to assassinate Howard Beale. It's not because of Max right. that she decides to. I think it reveals something. It, it, it strips away false layers that she of the a veneer of an image she has of herself that I think she wants to be. Yeah. Is now just, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to more readily accept my role in this great cosmic little game we have here. And so I think she's able to come to that decision to kill Howard Beale far more easily it's almost it's like 
you just looking at the dailies being like no the shot not good let's just let's just ax that like that yeah. that is the the same amount of emotion she expends on killing a man exactly it's, and it's it's and and i could see as a director and kind of following the robert mckee thinking of screenwriting uh, and again i'm paraphrasing mckee and probably in a way that's unfair but 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 i could see that being cut you know i could see that whole max diane thing being like what does this got to do with Howard? I want to see how I want to see more of Howard Beale, you know, shouting and and I want to see more of the ecumenical liberation army kind of like, you know, them leading up to the um, to to the assassination attempt, you know, like, um, I, I you know, and and so this whole relationship, thing, especially this what five minute monologue from Max's wife, right? <laughs> you know, like like, could you just imagine, you know, like. I would honestly be like, okay, that could hit the cutting room floor, you know, um, but it doesn't and it matters. And I think, you know, this idea of Chayefsky making sure the lines are said exactly is, 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 is basically saying, I know why this matters. And, and it may not be apparent and it may seem sort of silly to everyone, but it matters because, the, because I'm not just weaving a story about events, I'm weaving in a story about the fabric of of people as we know them. Right. Um, yeah. Which is, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm blowing too much smoke up Chayefsky's ass. No, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think so. It's a, it's a movie with an agenda, with a very strong voice that gets filtered through all these these other voices. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, I think it's, it's a condemnation of sorts of television itself. But it's also condemnation. So. Yeah, it's but it's also condemnation of us as an audience. Like he's very clear. He very clearly has some contempt for what people are watching and who those people are. Because, like, if we didn't watch it, they wouldn't put it on air. Like, what are you, are you gonna? Do you want to hear about the suffering of the Rohingya in uh, Myanmar, or do you want to like? know whatever the fuck trump is up to these days like i just kind of want to know what trump is up to the other stuff is sad and depressing let me know how this this guy is going to fuck everything up and i want to see him go down in flames etc yeah i mean it's interesting the the head of twitter uh said this just recently in the last week something along the lines of the election the 2016 election was probably a good example of uh, an inability for people to hold a single thought in their head for longer than a few days, and this is the head of Twitter, obviously the person who's, who's you know like um, moved the world to thinking in 140 characters, and and I I think that's very true. It's 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 you know like uh, we are we are starting to become more devoid of historical context in our thinking, and we're starting to become more devoid of uh, rationalization and reasoning. I know I sound like the old guy sitting on top, but that's exactly what what network is as a film. It's Howard Beale saying those things. Um, and 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 I think we can have that conversation uh, about social media now. The, the the side that I think is not well represented in this film and not well represented in that argument uh, about the social media transformation or the transformation of media landscapes. Mm-hmm. Is that is that language and thinking evolves over time? You know, you can't hold on to a singular idea. And I think, you know, like for Howard Beale, it's the era of Edward R. Morrow that they that they pine for. For anyone in the news industry, the the era of Edward R. Morrow, you know, holds right. 
a special place. And, the golden you know, age. It's the golden age. And and even Max talks about, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm writing this fucking book about, you know, the golden age of, te- of television and how great it was when we all started. Um, so I think we all kind of think about the golden age. And I think the thing that I, you know, I, the thing that I'm uh, trying to think about a lot as well, just as a parent, and as I'm sure you are as well, mm-hmm. is instilling the values of, of rationalization, reasoning, uh, research, um, and contextual thinking. Um, and, and that uh, ultimately in 140 characters goes away. And I find myself, uh, my own th- thought ability since getting an iPhone has changed dramatically. You know, like oh, yeah. I, I find I am actually in, unable to hold proper thoughts for long periods of time. It's one of the reasons I like doing podcasts because it's, you know, you and me having a dialogue. Um, and, and, you know, as opposed to like us exchanging ideas of our 140 characters and then like zipping around the next meme or, you know, GIF <laughs> or whatever. So I think the film, you know, like is getting at this, it, it's sort of loosely getting around the idea of uh, the good old days kind of thing. And, you know, it was better back in our time. But I think what the one thing that it does miss is that social media does have its inherent value and, and television uh, is now the norm for for the standard of greatness. You know, we don't yeah. we we think about television as you know the one thing he forget they failed to mention is Edward R. Murrow doesn't exist without television. You know, so uh, it may have been the case that television transformed the newspaper industry, and social media is now tele you know transforming television. Yeah. But but that's not to say that they don't have their inherent value. And I think you know the problem with networking a little bit is that it might have this sort of Ah, uh, things were better back in the day. You, you, and that's what's wrong with this final monologue, which is that you know your madness, Diane, is that it's kind of like uh, saying, "You kids, <laughs> get off my lawn." Yeah, a little bit, you know, a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the, but the times they are changing, and um, so one thing I like about that's interesting about this is that it's the movie is framed as a satire, um, but I found very little of it to be. I mean, it's hilarious at times but there's very little of it to be actually funny because everyone everyone back in the day was like oh yeah this is never this is never gonna happen this is a we're just this is an exaggeration every single thing has happened except for killing a man on screen <laughs> uh and maybe even that I'm, I'm not sure and it got me thinking of where we are today in terms of tv not i'm not necessarily news news is still weird although honestly i get most of my news from say written sources new york times washington post etc but that you know, they say nowadays that we are living in another golden age of television, and I'm wondering, what do you think Chayefsky would think about the fact that now it's not the director who is important on TV; it's the writer, it's the guy, it's you know, um, the guys from Breaking Bad, it's J.J. Abrams on Lost, it's it's all it's all, it's it's more writer-driven medium where they can tell better stories than they ever could before. Uh, how do you think that would affect network today? So I think one, I think Chayefsky would be impressed by the, the platitudes that the writer receives in terms of their ability to, to command a project, you know, like I think it's something he always worked towards, you know, the getting the final cut and uh-huh. uh, making sure that the words are adhered to. I think what he might be dismayed about though is, is that is that that power is not being put to good use, 
And and what I mean by that is is and he's specifically speaking about news. Um, but I think you know Aaron Sorkin tried to do this with the newsroom. Uh, I think David Simon does this with the Wire, and I'm hoping that he does this with the uh, the, the Deuce. Deuce as well. Um, is that the you know those two people are trying to basically put that power to good use, and it's and I think his question, and again I'm paraphrasing what I think Chayefsky might think, is that is okay, you've got a voice, which might be the golden age of television, but is television actually transforming us for the better? Uh, and even though we might be in a period where Breaking Bad is amazing and Game of Thrones is incredible, are those shows actually transforming us for the better? And are they actually challenging the world as we know it and as we see it? And are they making us think about the world we live in in different ways? And are they making us better people? Yeah. Or and are they I, just boredom killers? And I, yeah, are we just better at killing boredom? Um, and it's funny because I, I, I wrote my, not my master's thesis, but my honors thesis uh, on reality television um, and reality. Of and course I, you I, did. I did, yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I, I sort of tried to point to this uh, thing about the distinction between the techniques that reality television as, as derived from cinema. So I came up with this phrasing, you know, it's my own thing called reality television cinema. Um, and the, I, I got invited to speak at a couple of places about it and, and I got asked a few questions and this was back in like 2000, the early noughts. And, you know, the question I got, I would, I got asked a couple of times was, you know, what do you think would be the turning point for reality television in terms of its ability to transform the world? And, and I I used to say something along the lines of, uh, when a person dies on screen, you know, the, basically the Howard Beale effect. Uh, when somebody is killed on screen and it becomes uh, viewing for our pleasure, um, I think would be the the tipping point for for how we understand the world and maybe the detrimental power of reality television. What I never anticipated, if if we're going to be talking about uh, how what Chayefsky might think of television right now, what I never anticipated is the election of a reality television star as president. Um, and and I and I think. That might be Chayefsky might see the world as, uh, particularly since 2016, as uh, the 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 fact that television isn't speaking truth to power, and that we the election of a man, like I'm just going to say it, wholly unqualified for that office, um, is is tantamount to the fact that writers haven't done their parts, uh, and we haven't used. We might be in the golden age of television. But are we doing anything with that power? Mm. Um, that's what I think he might say. Maybe he'd be like, you know what, Game of Thrones is cool, y'all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah, he was. He was. He was very pro writer. But um, you, uh, you were, you were making me think that. Uh, yeah, we have all. The, we have thousands of channels, thousands of programs, and what are they doing? I mean, back then, I think it was easier in some way to just like you had the four networks and that was it and everyone commanded a voice but now it's now it's it's in infinitely harder to grab your share of that that audience yeah. and so and that's what and that's it and that is also the howard beale effect because then you just got to start doing crazier and crazier shit daily yeah. just to just to just to even a, try and get your message out there it becomes a it becomes a uh, mutually assured destruction game where you just keep stockpiling your weapons yeah. and, oh, and uh, keep upping the game over and over again. 
listen, and, and I don't want to like disparage things. I think Game of Thrones, for example, and Breaking Bad do have interesting things to say about the world in which we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Game of Thrones in particular, not the last season, but but previously had some profound things to say in which uh, the in which our notions of good and evil are in the powers that be are indifferent to our notions of good and evil. I think that was really interesting about Game of Thrones in the first few seasons. Mm. Um, and I, and Breaking Bad has something interesting to say about the human ego. Um, and, and, you know, the play, the, 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 the depravity with which man is capable of, um, despite their own, their own perception of themselves. So I think there are things there, but I, but, but at the same time, we do have, a person in office who, you know, lies on a daily basis and manages to get away with that. And that might be a symptom of a greater failing of both, you know, public service education and and the 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 sort of the thing you're talking about, which is that television um it, it, we're we're in a race to the bottom in terms of uh in terms of uh ratings to to basically um, see see where we can go. Now, I'm a person. I, I hope that doesn't come across as me uh, pontificating about the demise of social thinking through television or anything like that. Because because I'm a person who enjoys seeing people fight each other, you know, and crash bang zoom and mm-hmm. and 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 all the the pleasures. You know, I I really do enjoy those things. Um, but I but but you know. Should we aspire to our better selves, or should we aspire to the selves that that we know will turn on television? <laughs> yeah. Okay, you know, occasionally you need to see you need to see a pigeon sat on a branch contemplating its existence for every yeah four I, I think, or something I, I out there. I think Chayefsky would be really impressed by the wire. Oh, I, I, think, I, I think he would be too. Very much so. Yeah, I it's, think I think you know. Yeah, it's 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 not outside the monologues. It's a very they have a lot in common just with these characters who are just speaking and just going they're just going through an existence and trying to just get by they're also you know but like they they're shakespearean in their understanding of the world in which they mm. live in as well you know some of the some 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 things that mcnulty and uh i forget the uh bunk uh bunk but also the 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 guy with the scar down his face omar yeah you know like omar's philosophizing of the way the world works is just genius you know like it's oh, yeah. it's it's border level genius um and and i think you know the way in which that show um managed to examine the 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 way in which a city operates from from its smallest individuals to its largest institutions of across five seasons is something i think chayefsky uh might be very impressed with now I've uh, I'm only basing that off network, which I haven't right. seen. <laughs> I've, I've seen Marty. I saw Marty years ago. It didn't really make an impression on me. Um, so I'm curious now to to go back and and do some further you know reading of Chayefsky and think about uh, him and the Aaron Sorkin relationship. And I think Aaron Sorkin is a person. The reason why we like Aaron Sorkin isn't the isn't just because he writes flashy dialogue. It's because he writes that monologue in the first episode of Newsweek about you know uh, America and its place in the world yeah um, you know it's, it's there are there are multitudes of levels it's, it's why we like the West Wing you know there's um, a there, there's a there's a, a straight line connection between Chayefsky and Sorkin I was I was watching this and go like oh yeah like I this is Aaron Sorkin before Sorkin was Sorkin this is 
Yeah. Incredible. And and they both they both have a strong background in theater. You know, they both they both write for the stage. Uh, you know, like that's where they started. And and actually, and actually, actually, Chayefsky started in uh, he started in television, moved to the stage, then moved to movies and did a little stage again, and then just basically stuck to movies. He was he was all over the map, but I think it was TV was his first his first gig. Was it, oh, okay, but I, he was a playwright though. Yes, right? yes, and, he and was. a respected playwright. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to read this book, Mad as Hell, to to to, to find out more about Chayefsky's reading there. It's a great read. Uh, uh, and and the same with uh, Sorkin as well. Sorkin was a playwright, hmm. um, and I think uh, I I'm not a big theater person. Um, but when I read things like Chayefsky writing Network, which does read a little bit like a theater play, yes, um, I, I you know that's the kind of theater I think I'm interested in. Right. And you know there's there's strong political movements in the theater as well, and mm-hmm. and I kind of you know revolutionary theater and that sort of thing. I think. Uh, would be of interest to me. Yes. Well, Shahir, have I got something for you? I do believe that star of greatest show in the current modern age of television, Brian Cranston, yeah, is appearing in the theater adaptation of Network, directed by uh, Ivan Van Hove. Who? Uh, oh, wow. Uh, I think soon-ish. I believe. I believe it's tapped to happen. Uh, who I, did you I, want? Brian Cranston to play? Would you want him to play Max? Oh, I don't know. I think I'd. I think I'd want him. To, <laughs> I think I'd want him to play Max. I think he'd have the, like he can he can growl he can rant but I, I think I think he's a better fit for Max. He's, I think I think you're right. I think he would he could definitely pull off Beale, uh, mm-hmm. but he could I think he would be stronger fit for Max. Yeah, and you know, would like, you and would you change this? Screenplay, or would you just basically take the, the script of the movie and go, here it is on stage? Um, that's an interesting question because I think you, if you're going to do any translation work, you'd have to do it. Um, you'd have to have a very strong writer doing it with a sensitivity to why you're translating things. I think I think it would translate very well to stage. Like you know, you wouldn't need to change much for it to translate to stage. Mm-hmm. But I think. Is there a potential for this to become relevant today in a right. way that might bring in a younger audience or you know talk to talk to something more relevant today? I don't know. Maybe it would. Maybe you don't need to do that. Yeah. Uh, my my concern with like doing like that is that you're just going to get the the network nostalgia people in the in the audience <laughs> um, and the Brian Cranston fans and and not people who are going, oh, this is actually changing the way I think about the world. Right. Yeah, I I picture them. I don't. You probably didn't see the musical Dear Evan Hansen, but they have a lot of use of social media and how that gets the message and it actually causes some problems for the characters. I'd like to see them do something like that because it. You could the the core the core of it here is that the the medium can manipulate and change the message, and you can't talk about any sort of mass media communication without talking about social media and Facebook and and whatnot. So I, I would hope they would attempt some sort of slight updates to the uh, to the script yeah. as is but you know still keeping the major beats well the thing is is once you start doing that you're sort of doing a page one rewrite and it's not really network anymore it's just going to be inspired by network or an adaptation of network right mm. you know yeah. and that i think that would be, i mean i think that would be interesting 
I mean, I still want to go see it just from the director and star alone. I'm, I'm yeah. interested in seeing that. I, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but I know it's, it was it was talked about. Uh, so here we are, kind of uh, we're kind of rambling on, and I know I have a, a baby I should attend to, but we It'll ask, <laughs> yeah, we ask we ask a question every um, every week on the show, and uh, obviously this is an episode of for your reconsideration, folks, because Network did not win Best Picture, but. Uh, so I guess the question is, how has Network, both as a screenplay and as a movie, endured in the 41 years since it arrived in theaters? Uh, like fine wine, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm not a wine drinker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, The screenplay has uh, aged masterfully. I think the film has aged masterfully. Um, I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're comparing it to Rocky and all the president's men... Uh, I would, I think this is the more profoundly interesting film, but I think it's the one that's speaking directly about what its ideas are. Whereas all the president's men is very much about an event and philosophy through that event. Um, I really, I love this film. I think everyone should watch it. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a masterful film. Uh, one that has definitely, um, stood the test of time, so to speak. Um, and and I would I would advise everyone to watch it. I, I just I don't see how you could not. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. It has endured, like as you say, fine wine, great whiskey. Take your metaphor for aging gracefully. This is that movie. It's great, uh, despite the you know you know like the old technology used. I think the 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 main themes of it are still wildly relevant today if not even more so, because it's more of a prophetic vision than it is just satire, I think. But do, do, I, do, do I understand why it didn't win Best Picture? Yes, because 1976 was a terrible year for everybody. The 70s sucked. Let's just be, let's be honest. The 70s were awful. The uh, three of the movies up, which had All the President's Men about corruption in the White House, Network corruption in the media and Taxi Driver, which is why which is why New York is a terrible place. I totally get why Rocky would win. <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm on board. I'm like I just like just let me feel something good and hopeful. He even loses at the end, but that's that's the point of it. It's like he tried. Everything else is like confi- consigned to this. Oh man, the world is awful and it seems it feels like there's nothing i can do about it and yes we can take down a, a president but should we even have to do that it's um but really any one of these movies could have won i'm glad rocky won network is in a class of its own it uh it is a powerful screenplay just great message great you know it's a great role it's a great reel for actors if you just if you just like if you have to prepare a monologue like Here's the Howard Beale monologue from Network, and you just go. It's 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 a it's a writer's movie, but it can also be an actor's role if they really just want to sink their teeth into it. And it's so much fun. It's so tightly edited. Everything about this movie is great, and I highly recommend everyone go see it. You should go see it right now. You should get out, scream at the windows, mad as hell, all that all that good stuff. I'm mad as hell because I didn't watch this movie before. Is that what people should shout out? Yeah, and actually, yeah, uh, you know, they uh, they should remember it's uh, I'm as as mad as hell. That is actually the one, the one little flub in the lines that escaped Chayefsky's, uh view. 
So we've been quoting it wrong all this time. It's I'm, I'm as, as I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Well, there you go. Fun fact. Well, funny. Funny. Do you know the the first time I watched this movie? Uh, was because of uh, a Scott Frank screenplay, uh, Out of Sight. Oh, um, God, I love that movie. It's so <laughs> good. And do, you remember, and do you remember when George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez are in the back of the car in the trunk, and mm-hmm. they start talking about movies? And, and George Clooney says, I love that one movie. What was it called? Uh, Network. You know, I'm <laughs> mad as hell. And he starts saying that. And he, and he mistakes Faye Dunaway, and they have this whole conversation about Network and I think the China Syndrome and a couple other movies <laughs> and it's uh, that's basically when I saw that that I was like oh I got to check out what this movie Network is what's this I'm as mad as hell thing there you uh, go yeah and it's it is in fact Network so uh, we come to the end of what I believe is our longest episode here on uh, Oscar Watch I have the tendency to do that I apologize yeah, no no it's great it's been a pleasure having you on here we're gonna have to get both of you on just to to see what see <laughs> yeah, to see what happens. To see what yeah, it will yeah. be a lot of fun. Shahir Dowd, when you are not discussing the ins and outs of the screenplay to great movies, what are you doing and where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. Uh, of course, uh, the music video Automatica just got released today. I hope you see that. And if you do see it, please share it. Uh, any sharing love would help. You can find my podcast, uh, the only move, the only podcast about movies, uh, at www.onlymoviepodcast.com. Uh, you can email us at onlymoviepodcast at gmail or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. We're usually tagged in things with the Oscar Watch podcast, so I'm sure if you listen to the show, you might be aware of our yeah. show as well. We're kind of we're, we're kind of, we're kind of sister shows, sister shows, yeah. um, sisters, brothers, uncles, sisters, cousins. you know. Cousins? Whatever relations, yeah, pick yeah. your pick your pick your poison. <laughs> at, the, at the yearly cookout, we we get together and and tell old stories about things that have happened to us. Right, we talk about all the movies we watched. Mm-hmm. And they and just folks, I got to say, if you wish we talked about more modern movies, I'm sorry we can't do that. It's the nature of the show. But these guys, they will get into the week's big release and really dive into it. And they have such great chemistry together because. <laughs> They really don't always get along. They have very different <laughs> views as to the way movies should be, and that is precisely how that that makes for great podcasting. Uh, I think, in my, in my opinion, and of course, you can find you can write us an email at oscarwatchpodcast at gmail dot com. We appreciate all your feedback. Love answering questions. You can find us on social media at oscarwatchpod, and be sure to find us and uh, get us up on iTunes. Like, subscribe, leave us a review. It really helps people find it, and we uh, we really uh, really appreciate all of your efforts there. Next week on the podcast, Mr. Matt Marchetti shall be returning to discuss the 1970 best foreign language film, S- Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. Uh, oh, I I have not seen this movie. I have um, not either. It sounds fascinating. I love. I one thing I do like about the show is that it allows me a chance to see movies I would otherwise never watch, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So I mean, watch at home, folks. Be sure to and get. I will it. be tuning in. Yeah. Yes. Be sure to get the version if you're going to stream it. Get the version on Apple, not on Amazon. The one on Amazon is dubbed. Fuck if I know why. It's a disgrace to movie making have a to have a dubbed a dubbed live action film. Get the one on Apple. Um, thank you all for so much for listening. Until next time, we will see you on the red carpet. I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. The 
dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you, I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very 